Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 45. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Amy Edelstein, who is this month's author of The Conscious Classroom, The Inner Strength System for Transforming the Teenage Mind. Amy's an author, educator, and creator of the Inner Strength Foundation, which trains adolescent minds to work with mindfulness. Thank you very much for being here, Amy. Happy to be here. Want to fill in your bio for us a little more than maybe I have done? Sure. So Inner Strength Education was founded in 2014, and over the last almost nine years, we've worked with 22,000 high school students in public schools in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the fifth largest school district in the country and uh, one of the poorest per capita. So it's been uh, quite an interesting and revealing challenge to bring whole person wellness tools in a three-month four-credit in-school program. Uh, I started my own meditation background when I was in high school. So I started in 1978 when I was a sophomore in high school and never stopped and did a lot of intensive practice. So this program comes out of my own decades of experience and desire to share the fruits of my practice with coupled with trauma-sensitive approaches and all the work on social-emotional learning that's been done over the last few decades with these students. And we've had some uh, pretty amazing results. Yeah, I really enjoy the uh, anecdotes, especially in the book. And yeah, congratulations on doing so much with your life. 22,000 students. Um, Seems like you're making quite an impact in the world. Yeah. I'm ready to amplify and grow it. So, and I have a great team. So we work, we work well together. I have some phenomenal instructors and it's a constant learning process because the landscape for everyone has changed since COVID, since now with the augment of more sophisticated AI tools, I know that you focus on anxiety and you know, mental health concerns. And that's certainly on the rise for everyone, East and West, given how much the world has changed and how little attention and focus we put on cultivating inner strength. For sure. Yeah. It seems like a very much needed tool, especially amongst the youth, but, but I suppose really everyone. Yeah. I'm curious. So you got started meditating so early on in your life in high school. I I kind of wish I had started that long ago. What does it feel like to have been meditating for so long? Um, You know, it's, it's hard to say because I can't imagine not having done it. You know what I mean? You're in, you're in the life in the context that, that you've created. But for me, the cultivation of meaning and purpose is what really guided my search and brought me to meditation tools. I was really looking for a way to make sense out of the world. I was a product of the 70s. In the 70s, you know, the 60s were over. They didn't work. And Vietnam was still happening. And there were a lot of social ills and just a sense of generation gap. And 
the 70s were much more jaded than the 60s, but there was still this whiff of innocence and inspiration. And that's what really got me going. But I think in my own life, even before that, I was always interested in figuring out how things worked, what 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 was the ultimate meaning of the motions we were going through and what were the principles that helped guide us towards more deeper fulfillment and a more ennobled life in the world. So meditation was an amazing tool because it helped me really understand how we get so caught up in the mind, how we make decisions that are not well-informed, why it's important to know what our intention is in life, where, what are we shooting for? If we're not clear about what our purpose is. And I don't just mean, you know, I want to be a doctor and I want to make X amount of money. Um, and I want this kind of house and I want this kind of body, but I mean, you know, really, what are we here? What am I doing with my precious human birth? You know, it's a great poet. Mary Oliver said, what are you doing with your one wild, I forget the quote exactly, your one wild life, you know, but it, the sense that we need to be shooting for something that's much more awe-inspiring than what we generally see around us is what helps us really exceed limitation and the, and break out of the boundaries that we're born into. So meditation's a phenomenal tool for that. It's a tool that really helps put things in context. It helps it's a tool that helps with detachment. It's a tool that helps us realize our interconnectedness and the universality of everything we're feeling and thinking. We're all unique individuals, but everybody feels fear. Everybody feels loss. Everybody feels grief. Everybody feels excited. Everybody feels attraction. Everybody feels aversion. It's it's just part of the human condition. And my story might be different than yours and different than the person listening to us, but we're going through this range of human possibility. And for me, the goal was, okay, how do I understand all of that? How do I respond to the things that my mind's churning up and choose what's worth responding to and choose what's worth ignoring? And then uh, take one step in front of the other. So I'm really building a foundation that's constantly nourishing of myself and uh, brings light into the world. Mm. Yeah. How, so who do you blame for your initial exposure to mindfulness or, or what got it to stick for you? Um, I had three books in high school. My partner in crime was uh, my best friend at the time. Sugar Silverblatt, who I'm back in uh, in touch with, so we still we're still uh, close friends, although we don't see each other that often. She had two brothers who went into the Peace Corps instead of going to Vietnam, and they were in Thailand, and they came back, and they'd done some meditation there, and they had this amazing black light room. So you have to squint and picture the '70s, and it was a, a third floor room in a brick house and. Uh, Pittsburgh. 
and the walls were painted black and then there were fluorescent slogans on the walls you know painted with like purple fluorescent paint so when you turned on a black light they glowed so it said things like make love not war and things like that and in that beautiful black light room where we used to go and and hang out after school was a copy of Ram Dass's Be Here Now a copy of autobiography of a yoga of a yogi by uh, Swami Yogananda. And then I got a book by Richard Hittleman called the 28 day guide to yoga, which was a day by day guide. And Richard Hittleman was a disciple of the great non-dual realized saint Ramana Maharshi. And he had the first TV show in LA on yoga in the seventies and how to get a flat tummy when you're, if you breathe <laughs> properly, when you're vacuuming, so it's kind of <laughs> wild. Um, and I did all 28 days and I stood on my head and he had some meditations uh, where you, one of them was practicing, like staring at the flame of a candle and things like that. And I did them all and I just started having amazing experiences. Got it. Yeah, that sounds like such a, uh, I don't know, such great imagery the way you describe it. I can really picture sort of the scene, even though I didn't do much existing in the 70s from <laughs> movies I've seen. It, it sounds pretty groovy and pretty familiar. So thanks for walking us through that. Yeah, it, it was really different. But you'd No internet, no YouTube, no Googling, no online courses no ratings from other people, you know, all you had were the books that happened to turn up in a used bookstore or a friend's brother's, you know, den. You, you, it, it was a very, it felt like you were meant to find those books because they're the ones that showed up. You know, now that we can pick and choose from, you know, thousands, if not millions of options, we feel like it's more up to our power of choice or discrimination or agency. And so it puts this burden on us all the time of, I've got to find the right thing. I've got to look more. I've got to decide. And um, at that time, you just, you just made the most with what crossed your path because that was all you got. Mm. Seems seems healthier in some ways, at least for those of us who get overwhelmed by the amount of choices and access that we have these days. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the inner strength curriculum. So as you said at the start of the podcast, it's a three-month, four-credit program. So is this taking place during the school day or is it after school? And is it in public schools or private schools? How does, how does the system look and how it's playing out? It's all in public schools. I, I'm a product of public school education, and I believe in public education, and I believe that we should be investing huge amounts in public education because that's where we cultivate the creative potential of the next leaders or bus drivers or moms and dads uh, of the next generation. So public education is essential and the lack of investment in public education, I feel is a crime. I, I feel that you would be, I don't know where you live, but in Philadelphia, when I first went into the school system and started to see that 
there are libraries with no librarian and no books. Hmm. There are teachers who buy copy paper because you can't print out handouts if you need them. Um, until you mean they're the, making carbon copies by hand, or what? They're making xeroxes, but there's no uh-huh. paper. There's no budget for paper. We're a first world country. Last time I checked, Philadelphia is one of the ten largest cities in America. We're not talking back of beyond, you know, in the remote Himalayas, where okay, you could understand not having paper. There are no trees there. I mean, Philadelphia. It's not the 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 under the underfunded situation in our public education has resulted in really the loss of so so much creative potential. So my goal was to bring wellness, whole person wellness, and critical thinking skills to these students. So the curriculum includes seven evidence-based mindfulness techniques, you know, very familiar ones, breath, love and kindness, mindful, seeing freshly, or the chocolate meditation, body scan, things like that. It includes compassion building, what builds good friendships, what inhibits good friendships, what supports good communication, what inhibits good communication, And then we work on seeing large-scale systems at work. So we look at 300 million years of brain development, taking an evolutionary look back in time, how the brain formed, how even in 2023, however sophisticated we may think we are, we're still triggered and influenced by millions of years of brain development and the survival instinct. And when you take students through, well, why did you, why did you take that risk, or why did you run when you, somebody said something to you and you panicked? Um, and we link that back to how the brain developed and what was what could have been an evolutionary trigger for that way the brain developed. Students starts to see that they're in a per- particular period of adolescent brain growth. And there's certain things that are happening neurologically, physiologically, that are part of this deep evolutionary design. And so they're not just stupid because they responded to peer pressure and didn't listen to their mom. Mm. Their brain is encoded to create bonding with their contemporaries at this age, because way back when, in early human history, our parents' generation was going to die out when we reached adolescence. Then we needed to bond with our survival. And then our, our neurochemistry changes in order to promote that pure bonding. So you start to understand that. You go, oh, okay. And then here are some ways to, we can't, we can't um, not be influenced by our physiology, but we can build in mechanisms to double check ourselves to make sure we're safe, to lift us up and out of those situations. So it becomes very practical, but it's really teaching students how to think about how our experience is deeply influenced by layers and layers of history. And we can become archaeologists of ourselves. We can see these layers that are influencing us now, and then we can 
really enjoy how we're responding rather than, oh, I made a dumb mistake and I can't make that mistake again to, oh, what might be the triggers? What might be the context? What might be a bigger context? Uh, and it can really lift students out of a sense of defeat, self-negation, self-criticism, frustration, um, and discouragement. We also do some going back in time and looking at a thousand years ago in history and how, as you said, there were fewer choices. Life was easier. There was more social support, but there was also less agency and less possibility to express one's own individuality. So, you know, we, we do a lot of looking at things in context, but a different context than what they're normally taught. And it's mm-hmm. really helpful and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like providing this kind of context. I know that kind of information about evolutionary origins of the brain and just, I think as you sort of emphasize again and again in the book, just situating the student in a world in which there's so many things taking place outside of their power, so many forces, genetic, biological, social, cultural, um, influencing them can probably make it easier for them to give themselves less of a hard time you know, when they fall down or stumble or things like that. Yeah, exactly. They don't blame so, in the same way. Yeah, yeah. And the the critic, uh, why not start in the teenage years, like uprooting the pernicious criticisms of the inner critic? You know, it seems like a, a ripe time to maybe begin that. Mm. Um, so why did you, why are we focusing on teenagers as opposed to like elementary or middle? Is it happenstance or coincidence or that seems to be, like a time in people's lives, especially these days that are particularly challenging where maybe the most help is needed? Well, I guess everyone has their calling. Of course, it's important to help young students with character formation. It's a different thing. I'm very interested in exploring life from a philosophical lens. And so high school students are able to self-reflect and able to look to objectify their own thoughts and feelings and motivations and start digging in, in ways that I'm very interested in helping support them. Uh, Middle school and and grade school students are at a different level of self-development. So you do different things with them. And that's not, it's, it's not my calling. Sure. Yeah, I taught uh, I taught high school philosophy once, and uh, those kids got my jokes much more easily than the elementary or middle school. So I, I share your preference there with dealing with kids who are a little bit older. So tell me a little bit about how this all got started. Did you just drive over to the nearest public high school near you and knock on the door and, and say, hey, I, I can do some of this teaching? Or, or how did it begin? Um, kind of, uh, sort of. It, it, it was when I started the program, I, I felt like I wanted to create something that would have lasting impact. I wanted to create something that was evidence-based that had research behind it, third-party research behind it, academic research that really measured impact and that I could use that impact to grow the program. And I knew I wanted to scale. I wanted to make sure that within a specific geographical 
geographic area, I was reaching enough students year by year that ultimately we could maybe start seeing a difference in outcomes, um, better employment rates, better retention in employments, better adjusted adults. So that was what I set out to do. Um, I had a friend whose wife was a guidance counselor and had been a guidance counselor in the in the Philadelphia public schools for 20 years. And she really wanted a mindfulness program. And he wore me down. He worked on me for six months before I finally agreed to do it. Cause I really wanted to work with older students. I wanted to work more at the college level, but the difficulty with college is students are paying for their credits. They don't have a lot of time. And while they need supports, they they just don't have the luxury to take things that aren't directly degree related. Mm. And the more I started looking into it, even though there was a lot of interest on, on various campuses, I realized that there were a lot of difficulties. Whereas in high school, students have to be there by law. So you don't have to market to individuals to get bums on seats, as they say. You you just need to work with the administration and find out where it can fit, and then you can reach more students. So that's how I started. I started in one high school. They It went great. They loved it. I got institutional Re- review board approval for a research study that was conducted by Syracuse University. They did a three-year research study, and now they're doing a second one. And we just expanded school by school. Uh, so we've re- we've been in over 21 schools. Now we're usually in about eight schools a year. And I try to work with the entire grade level. So we'll work with all the 11th graders and an intro program for the ninth graders, or we'll work with all the sophomores and then do some intro programs for other grades in the school. I try to reach enough students so that they start to share a language together that's based around compassion, self-responsibility, positive uh, orientation towards self and other and towards the future. Cool. Yeah, it sounds really awesome. So do the do the ninth graders get to take it three times, like in 10th and 11th and well, maybe four times in 12th also, or do they just get one try at it? They get one, they get one three month program, and then they might get refreshers later in different formats, like a offsite retreat or um, a four week program or, or something else. The schools really don't like to give up a ton of academic time because they're under pressure to reach certain testing targets. Got it. Yeah, and it's it's great that you're painstakingly trying to tie like the performance indicators to the uh, curriculum because I'm sure that helps you, you know, grow it and spread and, you know, convince people to convince their bosses and their bosses um, to have it instituted in different schools. Definitely. We're also sharing that, you know, through academic conferences and some academic anthologies. We've done some chapters for two books coming out later this year. So really trying to take a rigorous approach to deeper training. You know, everyone wants a quick fix. And like anything, self-knowledge, self-reflection is a lifelong endeavor. 
you know, the Greeks didn't say, okay, you know, come listen to Socrates for an hour in the afternoon, and then you're going to be set for life. They, they said, okay, well, come to, you know, our dialogue forums and start learning how to do this and, and be ready to apply yourself for the next decades until you die. That's, that's our, should be our attitude to self-knowledge and self-growth and whole person wellness, because we're always discovering different capacities we have, different responses we have, uh, life presents different challenges and opportunities. So I'm trying to set this trajectory of lifelong learning and that takes time. But in our school system, of course, time is, you know, time is probably the commodity that they have least of. Hmm. Yeah. So question about the teachers, are you just grabbing local yogis off the, off the street or are you training the people who are already working at the school, the science and the math teachers and language arts teachers and, and having them do the teaching or is it just you or, or maybe some people you've trained personally? I have about eight teachers, eight instructors and me at any given time. Um, I train them. There's a, a training that I take them through, uh, I do try to grab the local yogis off the street because at least they have they they have a background, so they're not coming to mindfulness practice. Like I need to teach them how to teach mindfulness to to teens, which is its own program. If you also need to learn what mindfulness is and how to practice that, that's a lot to teach all at once. Uh, so it's nice when you have people have a sense of the practice. I do train some school teachers, but. I prefer to bring instructors into the school. So I'm doing in the middle of a teacher training right now. And I think I have six full-time classroom teachers in that program. They're learning because they're really interested and they want to bring it. It doesn't work very well to try to get regular classroom teachers to learn how to teach mindfulness to students if they're not interested and they don't already have their own uh, experience with mindfulness. They're, they're so overworked. They have so much to do that it's, it's not fair, I think, to expect them to. I'm happy to train them if they're interested, but I really try to convince the schools to bring in outside instructors and let the teachers learn if they're interested and give them, you know, a little sense of some support in their classrooms. Because they're they're really carrying a heavy burden. I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, your book paints uh, a really detailed picture about what it's like and what what the forces are for you know someone living in a teenage body these days. And I think there is uh, hopefulness throughout the book, but there's also a pretty painstakingly uh, and and somewhat um, hard to read sort of outline of just what today's teens are facing. Can you talk a little bit? I mean, it's not a secret, really. People know, you know, the ills of social media, and I'm sure parents of teenagers and teenagers themselves are quite familiar, but maybe you can just, maybe on the briefer side, so we don't depress people too much, like what kinds of things teenagers are facing today that maybe are unique in this time period, or maybe some of the things that teenagers have always faced that have always made tools like mindfulness, um, you know, useful and important? Yeah, it's a big question. 
I think mental health is important and we as a culture don't tend very well to mental health. We as a culture don't have close-knit, extended, multi-generational family relationships where everyone belongs, even if they even if you're the black sheep of the family, if you lived in a remote village where there were only 15 households, everyone still belonged. You didn't get kicked out. In our urbanized, technologized culture, there's so much alienation. And there's often not a a close, tight-knit social support system that youth can count on. And even though teenage years are a time of revolt and rebellion, uh, that can be held in a community with positive context. You know, when you if you look at traditional religious settings, if you go to very strong practicing Christians or Orthodox Jews in in America, you'll see that the teenagers feel more a sense of belonging and a sense of being held by the culture around them. Most of our youth these days don't feel that. One parent household common or revolving sets of responsible adults are common and that leaves students adrift. Now, if you're looking at lower income students, then there's a whole set of conditions that are really difficult. So there's food insecurity, there's housing insecurity, there's um, the threat if you're uh, one, from one of the non-privileged parts of our population. There is the threat of incarceration. There's the threat of deportation. There's the threat of unfair harassment. And then our culture is also a culture of violence. Uh per capita, the number of firearms in this country is just off the charts and nowhere compares. And the crazy thing is, you know, firearms are designed to have the capacity to kill and the federal safety laws have a 10 page document on safety around regular ladders but I think the document around safety requirements for guns is like two pages. Hmm. So think about it. I, I mean, we're really like in some skewed environment where safety is not being um, built into our culture around firearms for all kinds of like really uh, irrational reasons. This is not about the gun debate. This is just about common sense and keeping kids safe from accidents. Um, So urban kids live with that. And so you couple the pressures around, you know, then you add social media, which for students, you know, teenagers who are, you know, developing and growing into their adult bodies are very self-conscious anyway. And when they're set up against, you know, an ideal of beauty that they can't reach, 
it creates a lot of depression and self-concern, a sense of, you know, that the fear of missing out is something that can push teenagers towards suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. And I know several students who that is what pushed them to the brink. So we're living in times that are just really difficult to navigate because we don't have a strong sense of purpose. We don't have a strong sense of heart and meaning. We don't have rites of passage. We don't have holidays that have celebration that's uncoupled from money and things or trivia. We're just, we're just not building layers of inner satisfaction into our world. And if we don't have that, then when you hit a period like adolescence, which is so tumultuous, you don't have, you don't have a raft in, in the seas. So we, I feel it's urgent that we, in any way we can, we start having meaningful conversations with our young people. We start talking about purpose. We start talking about what their goals are. We start talking about what they love and why and what are their visions and what makes them light up. Not just how the, can they save the world and youth is going to fix the climate change and all the pressure to be superhero or yeah, you know, I had a couple of young people tell me that the pressure to be Greta Thunberg is so much. They just like they feel like they can't live up to what the adults want them to do. Um, so we need to we need to meet them as human beings and and as for those of us who are older, you know, whether you're in your 30s or your 80s, our our 15-year-olds need mentors. They need adults who care about them and talk with them about things that matter. And and if we're not doing that en masse as a culture in any way we can, our our young people are going to find their guidance from Google or Snapchat. And it's not going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for painting a picture there. I thought maybe we could read, there's a small section of the book where one of your students is reciting their own sort of metta, or I guess you call it love and kindness mm-hmm. uh, prayer. And it's, it's, it's kind of beautiful. Let me see which page it's on. 54. Let's see here. So the students always write these. Um, every year, every class, and they're always amazing. Uh, I'll read this one, but it's very short, and maybe I'll just invite you, all the listeners, if you're not driving, to let yourself enjoy the next 45 seconds of meditation and imagine that there's a 16-year-old who wrote this and who's sitting in front of a class guiding his peers. I think this was a boy. Um, So here we go. May we love ourselves for who we are. May we love ourselves when we're happy with ourselves. May we love ourselves 
when we're disappointed with what we do. May we love ourselves knowing we're not perfect. May we love ourselves knowing that we're all imperfect and doing the best we can. And may we love the world and all the people in it this way. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, especially that they get to write their own words for those metaverses. I think that could really make it uh, compelling for the individual instead of the kind of rote, rote phrases that may or may not hit in the same way. Would you say the students, and I'm sure it's on an individual basis, but the concentration practices versus the heart practices, which of those do you think resonate more with teens or is it really just come down to the individual? Um, the heart practices are a lot easier for them. Um, the concentration practices or the insight practices, whether it's breath or open awareness or mindfulness on sound or even body scan can be triggering. The mm. so one is the, the silent practices. Young people don't really have a lot of silence in their lives these days. They almost always have music in. Uh, they have their earbuds in all the time. And silence can make them nervous. And also if students have a lot of anxiety or trauma, whether it's conscious trauma or unconscious trauma, then sometimes that deep stillness can make them, can sort of well up some of the things that they haven't put attention to or aren't in a position or capacity to put attention on. So as an instructor or as an adult, if there are parents or teachers who are listening to this, if you want to guide your, the young people in your life with concentration practices, you want to always respect their conscious or unconscious resistance. Because that resistance might be what George Valiant, the psychiatrists call ego defense mechanisms. So they can be ego defense mechanisms, positive ones that are protecting the self from engage, you know, from having to confront difficult experiences in a, at a time when they're not ready or in a context where it wouldn't be appropriate or safe. So if you see kids who are shaking their knee or looking around or can't sit still or um, start looking distracted or agitated, then the concentration practices are ones to just back off from without making them feel bad. And just remember that mindfulness is a powerful tool and it's not necessarily the right thing for everyone all the time. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really compelling. I'm glad I asked you that question because it sounds like it's touched on something that's particularly challenging with the teenage population. Um, yeah. And I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't just say, you know, sit more because mm -hmm. uh, it's more nuanced than that. Yeah. Maybe, you know, as we're getting close to the end here, I'll just ask you a little bit about plans for the future. Um, I'm here in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you're planning on bringing it a little bit, uh, two, two hours south on the, Mm -hmm. Northeast regional train. 
But yep. um, what's happening next for this system and the conscious classroom? So my goal with our in-person work is to stay in Philadelphia because I really want to try to make a difference in a single geographic region. And school systems tend to be very localized, even big ones. Every The unit of change and the unit of influence is usually the principal in the school, not the district. So I do offer teacher trainings for other teachers who want to bring it, and, and I'm happy to work with districts who want some support in helping to figure out how to build a program. But I, for our actual in-person instruction, I'm keeping it uh, localized to Philadelphia. I mean, we have 47 high schools in this city, so that's certainly more than we're reaching every year. It's plenty uh, to deal with. But what I'm looking forward to, Inner Strength has a free app called Inner Strength Vibe, V-I-B-E. It's a free download on Apple and Google Play. There is no paywall, no credit card required because that's a barrier for many teens. And you're free to download it, share it. I want to put some more attention into that. It was really designed around our curriculum to support our students so they had something once the program finished, and I'm ready to take that the next level with some tech partnership. And I'd like to be also communicating a little bit more widely about what works and what doesn't so far from my experience. Because um, everyone has now heard that mindfulness can help, and people are very concerned about the next generation and how to nurture them and cultivate them and care for them. And I think that there's a, a can be a desire to jump on the bag, bandwagon with tools that are require a little bit more nuance to implement safely. So I want to do as much as I can to share what we've learned from work with so many thousands of students and also collaborate with others who are really thinking about how to provide pathways of care from early years through matriculating to college, through that transition from college into adulthood, and and to see how we can build an understanding in our culture that's secular, non-denominational, but that brings a sense of of purpose and depth back into our, our general conversation. So that's, that's what I'm, and I'm looking forward to doing some conferences, some academic conferences, some more, um, we have some publishing projects, um, and just being in conversation with other people who are really trying to innovate. I am curious about the possibility of AI and tech to help students create individualized learning pathways that work for them. I'm a little scared of it, but I feel like I've got to get, I've got to get my teeth in it. So, because it's, that's, that's the, that's the wild west frontier and 
we want to make sure we build it right from the beginning because uh, it's going to be hard to bring in the human element uh, if we get too far along. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Cool. Well, so online, I guess uh, folks can find you at your personal website or at Inner Strengths website. Do you want to just name those locations? Yeah. The best place to find all my work is innerstrengtheducation.org. We are on Instagram and Facebook. I'm amyedelstein.com, but it's a fairly neglected website. <laughs> and yeah, if you if you need to contact me or are interested in more, you can contact me through innerstrengtheducation.org. There's a contact form there and everything will get to me. We're still a small organization. And, you know, I just encourage everyone who's doing this work or listening to your podcast to really know that the efforts are worth it, that we can live a happier, more fulfilled life. We can become kinder. Our brains are designed to be trained so we can work with them in constructive ways. We don't have to be just um, victim to our negative and repetitive thoughts. There are positive, constructive, rewarding, and fulfilling ways to train ourselves into a more loving and fulfilling life. So I just encourage everyone to trust yourself and um, respect your own desire to, to live a life that is really happy for all the right reasons, because it's certainly within the human birthright to do. Hmm. Well, that's a beautiful way to end. Amy, thank you so much for your time today. And thanks for the contribution that you're making. Oh, thank you. Thank you for communicating with so many people about all of this. So important.